Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network and the second part of our episode focusing on Professor Mark Solovey's 2020 Social Science for What? Battles over public funding for the other sciences at the National Science Foundation. I'm Keith Kruger, one of the hosts on the network, and Mark is an expert on social science funding in the U.S. and the Cold War history of the social sciences. In our first episode, He shared some of the political and legislative history establishing the National Science Foundation, why the social sciences were not included in the initial legislation, how they nevertheless became included on a small and cautious basis, and some of the landmark developments, controversies, and interesting individuals involved from roughly the mid-1940s to the late 1960s, including Senator Harris's remarkable legislative proposal in the mid to late 60s to establish a separate social science agency, a national social science foundation. As I shared in part one, I think many readers will agree with me that Professor Solovey's larger narrative could make for some interesting Cold War political drama. With that in mind, an interesting plot point could be related to Mark's 2001 article in the premier journal, Social Studies of Science. It was titled Project Camelot and the 1960s Epistemological Revolution, Rethinking the Politics, Patronage, Social Science Nexus. Mark, can you fill us in on this Army Research Office study? Uh, What were the aims and the design of the project? Uh, Sure, Keith. First, let me say it's really good to be back for part two here. Well, the controversy over Camelot was is one of the most famous or infamous episodes in the Cold War history of the social sciences. I just want, before telling you about Project Camelot, I just want to mention that that 2001 article is actually the first time I used the phrase politics, patronage, social science nexus, which I still think is a very useful phrase. Um, And that article also happens to be my best known scholarly article. Well, or at least it's the most, the one that's received the most citations. Uh, There are more than a couple hundred by now. Okay, so what was Project Camelot? Well, um, it had its origins in the rapid expansion of Cold War defense funding and use of the social sciences in the United States. As you mentioned, it was um, specifically an Army-sponsored project. And even more specifically, it's um, the conceptualization of the project took place at the Special Operations Research Office, which was supported by the Army, and it was located at American University in the D.C. area. Planning for the project began in 1961, so this is early in the Kennedy administration, and this becomes part of really uh, significantly beefed up counterinsurgency research and operations carried out by the U.S. uh, government and the Defense Department. And the project's conceptualization developed with extensive consultation by social and psychological scientists, and many came from top universities. Um, So there was a strong sort of academic bent to this project, even though it also had uh, very expected, important practical uses. 
So the aims were really twofold. One was to develop a scientific model of the revolutionary process. So this model would reveal um, the course of revolutions and the stages of revolutionary developments. And of course, I did pin, trying to pinpoint the factors that would lead from one stage to the next. So from a scientific point of view, this model would have explanatory and predictive power. And in terms of its practical use, well, this would provide guidance for influencing or as would have been expected at the time, undermining revolutions, especially leftist revolutions that seemed counter to U.S. foreign policy interests. And the research base for the project was going to be massive. It would, uh, the proposal called for dozens of historical and contemporary case studies of revolutionary movements that had succeeded or failed from Latin America to the Middle East, uh, Southeast Asia. And um, this was all going to be embedded in social systems theory, which was a major interdisciplinary paradigm being developed in the 1950s and 1960s, or, you know, one of the key figures, but only one of many associated would have been Harvard, the Harvard sociologist Talcott Parsons. So Camelot, as it developed, seemed to be a great case of social science um, being understood and used as a powerful weapon in the U.S. military arsenal needed to defeat the spread of communism around the world. So, Mark, uh, what was the explosive controversy over Project Camelot all about, and, and how did it inform Senator Harris's National Social Science Foundation proposal? Yeah, good questions, and the controversy did become explosive. Let me just say a word about how it started. So I mentioned there were a lot of U.S.-based social scientists involved in the consultation and then presumably would have been involved in the research stage, but the project also involved the recruitment of scholars in other countries to participate in what was often called at the time foreign area research, meaning areas not, not on U.S. soil. And I should also emphasize that the project itself, while massive, I mean, at the time it was expected that the project would require about four to six million dollars. It was viewed as a pilot project. So the idea that was that in the future there would be bigger and better and more powerful projects. And, you know, some speculated that those projects might cost upwards of $50 million. And again, that's $50 million in the 1960s. We're talking about a huge amount of money for any social science project. And that's why, as, as we mentioned before, some people thought of Project Camelot and what would come later as sort of the Manhattan Project for the social sciences. So the controversy exploded in 1965, and the particular details, there was an effort to recruit some Chilean scholars, and this was being carried out by a U.S.-based anthropologist named Hugo Nutini. And when Nutini presented the project to these Chilean scholars, he noted that it had support from government agencies and other organizations, but he didn't specifically mention the military. Interestingly, I think, uh, as I recall, he mentioned the National Science Foundation, uh, which I don't think was actually true, uh, at least in the, the case of the sponsorship of Project Camelot. But anyway, some of the Chilean scholars were suspicious. They gathered evidence. They talked to other people and they concluded, um, and I, rightfully so, uh, that Camelot really was part of the U.S. counterinsurgency efforts. It was sort of the social science wing uh, of that, those efforts. So complaints in Chile and uh, nearby countries and eventually uh, elsewhere spread really around the world in anti-U.S. strongholds. So uh, papers in Havana and Moscow commented and criticized the project. And this all became an embarrassment for the U.S. foreign policy establishment. So this was canceled. The project itself was canceled by the U.S. Secretary of Defense. So this reached pretty high levels of discussion and concern. Um, that was in July of 1965. And congressional hearings actually began the very same day. 
So there was a lot of attention, you know, again, outside of the United States, but also inside of the United States, in the political establishment, in the academic world. And Camelot almost immediately became a central focal point in a divisive debate. The debate had a couple angles, like one had to do with how were social scientists contributing to the U.S. Cold War policies and programs and were their contributions appropriate, um, you know, with growing anti-war demonstrations against U.S. presence in Vietnam. Um, there was a lot of concern about their contributions of science to American militarism. And then the other point was in this debate concerned the role of the military in funding social science research and, according to critics, in distorting and corrupting social science research and social science ethics. So how did this relate to Senator Harris's um, idea for a National Social Science Foundation? Well, Harris, as we mentioned in part one, was the chair of the Senate Subcommittee on Government Research. And in that role, he was investigating research on foreign areas. And Camelot loomed very large at this moment. And so Harris himself became concerned about military funding, thinking that it would fuel anti-U.S. sentiment abroad. And he also became worried about what he understood to be the limited and cautious funding from civilian agencies for the social sciences, especially the NSF. So the idea was that, well, social sciences were turning to the military because civilian agencies weren't providing them with adequate funding. So it turns out that Harris's remarkable proposal for a new social science agencies had roots in this wider evaluation about the problematic position of the social sciences in the federal government in both the military and its civilian wings. Uh, if you're taking government funds, guys like sociologist C. Wright Mills and Gabriel Almond, hey, they, they had differing takes on it, but the, the idea was academic independence was compromised. Definitely. And, and this goes all the way back to where we started last episode, where remember there was that concern within the Social Science Research Council about being part of NSF before, when it was in the proposal stage, because some people thought mm -hmm. that taking money from a new federal agency would lead to political control and political corruption and distortion and compromising integrity of, of scholarly research. And it's the same, it's the same underlying problem, although in this case in the 1960s, the focal point is not a civilian agency, um, but it's the military um, and more generally the national security agencies threatening the independence of uh, academic social scientists. Well, well, thanks for that, Mark. And the stories of Project Camelot and the failed National Social Science Foundation proposal provide an interesting narrative backdrop as the story advances into the 1970s, at which point you add the budgetary pressures of those stagflationary times and a, and a focus on some key episodes, including the conservative attack on Makos, a social science-based grade school curriculum. Can you set the context for us and unpack some of these points of interest covered in your aptly titled fifth chapter, Losing Ground? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So briefly going back to uh, what we talked about in part one, the high point of political interest in doing more for the social sciences really took place in the mid to late 1960s. And by 1970, social science funding at the NSF was about 6% of the agency's total research budget. And during that decade of the 1970s, that figure remained more or less stable, just fluctuating a little between 5 and 6%. But beneath that uh, apparent stability, there were really growing troubles for the social sciences. And there was a larger context for this, right? There was um, the leveling off of overall federal science funding 
by the late 1960s that continued into the 1970s so when science budgets got tight it became more difficult for natural science oriented agencies to give funding to the social sciences um, there was also growing disillusionment, which happened across the political spectrum from, you know, left to right or right to left. Um, disillusionment with the promises of the social science informed social programs associated with Johnson's Great Society and the War on Poverty. And there also more, not just disillusionment, there was more specifically mounting uh, conservative attacks on the social sciences, which is part of this resurgent conservative movement during the 70s that eventually leads to the Reagan era, uh, the Reagan presidency. So all of this placed the social sciences under great pressure uh, once again at the NSF. And MACOS, as you mentioned, became a major flashpoint. This was uh, a social science-oriented grade school curriculum, and it had its origins in the 1960s. A bit of NSF's history we didn't cover before, but I should mention now is that NSF actually had developed a very well-known and influential program for supporting science and education in the school systems. And it started with physics and biology. So in the mid-1960s, uh, there was an effort to bring the social sciences into this NSF-sponsored effort to improve science education in the grade schools. And there were a few people involved. Um, perhaps the most influential figure was the um, cognitive psychologist at Harvard, Jerome Bruner. In any case, by the mid-1970s, MACOS materials had been purchased by more than 1,700 grade schools across, across the country. Um, and this was a program to be used in uh, the fifth grade. By the mid-1970s, MACOS also came under scathing attack, especially in conservative quarters. And this happened at all levels. So it started out sometimes in local communities where conservatives were concerned about what, what was being taught to their children. Um, but it quickly percolated up to conservative think tanks operating on the national or international level, and then also in Washington, D.C. among conservative politicians. Well, why did they, what were they concerned about? Well, it's true that MACOS materials included consideration of different cultures. Um, the idea was to expose children to thinking about um, the sort of beliefs and values and social practices, not just in their local community, but actually get them to think about like, how did people around the world, how did different cultures um, live? So this led to the charges that first, it was a bad idea to present young minds, you know, remember we're thinking 11 and 12 year old children, um, to present them with materials about, for example, cannibalism, trial marriages, wife swapping, violent behaviors in other cultures. Of course, that was not the only thing MACOS material included, but it included some of this. The other major criticism was that MACOS materials just presented this information and asked, expected teachers to teach the, the children uh, about this, but without a clear moral framework, which would identify certain things as good and bad. So then MACOS became subject to you know, longstanding charges that the social sciences were supporting cultural relativism, secular humanism, situation ethics. So amidst these mounting charges, NSF uh, was sort of in a panicky situation. They investigated what they had done and they withdrew all support for MACOS. When this happened, sales of this social science-based curriculum just plummeted around the country. And I, I have to emphasize, this created enormous headaches within the agency, not just for those who were involved with MACOS. One of the high-level administrators said that this had created the worst political crisis in NSF's history. Certainly, we're experiencing similar and related issues uh, these days. Well, let me ask you, though, about Richard Atkinson. As of today, He's the only scholar 
from the psychological and social sciences to actually become NSF director. What, what was his background and how did he manage to reach the top spot? Um, what really happened during uh, Atkinson's reign at the agency? Yeah, for me, this is a fascinating story because, you, as you mentioned, he is the first and last social social scientist or psychologist in the 20th century um, to become NSF director. Um, he started out, at, he was appointed deputy director at, at the agency in 1975. The following year, um, when the, the actual director had left, uh, NSF was looking for a new director, and Atkinson was not on the original list of names provided by the National Science Board um, for Congress to consider because Congress had to make these appointments. Um, but Democratic Senator Ted Kennedy was the chair of the committee who would be holding the confirmation hearings on that position. And Kennedy knew Atkinson personally and wanted him for this position. So it was really Kennedy's intervention that leads Atkinson to becoming uh, nominated and then appointed director. And he held that position from 1977 to 1980. Well, you might be thinking, uh, who was this guy? Uh, well, he was a mathematical psychologist. He had risen quickly through the academic ranks at Stanford University. He had a lot of prestige and influence. He was a member of the National Academy of Sciences. He made landmark contributions cited till this present day in the study of human memory. He was a leader in the so-called cognitive revolution in psychology. He was also a major advocate of computer-assisted education. So he really had a stellar career even uh, by the mid-1970s. And as suggested by, he had a certain suggested by what I said, he had a certain orientation toward the social or psychological sciences, captured in a phrase by one journalist who called Atkinson the hardest social scientist NSF could find. So uh -huh. Atkinson himself reflected and wrote about his time at the NSF, and he has claimed, this is in writing, that social science efforts expanded and social science funding improved during his leadership years at the NSF. But I've investigated the the documents in reality is more complex and perhaps unfortunately it's less less uplifting. In many ways, the social sciences actually lost ground during his uh, reign there. And let me uh, get, point to just a few things. First, um, in 1975, there was a major agency-wide reorganization that Atkinson supported. And in, as part of this reorganization, the separate social sciences division that had been created back in 1961 closed. The social science programs were moved into a new organizational unit where they were placed alongside the biological sciences, but not as equals because the biological sciences had much greater funding and that unit was always led by biologists. Atkinson also supported a critical internal report of NSF's efforts to fund MACOS. And again, there were a lot of critics. Atkinson wasn't alone here, but this report that Atkinson uh, it gets involved in leads NSF to drop funding for MACOS altogether, as I mentioned. And last, he applauded another report. This one was carried out by the National Academy of Sciences um, under the leadership of Herbert Simon, sometimes called the Simon Report. And one of the things that that report said is that NSF's effort to support applied social science had really not worked well. It was ineffective and it should be curtailed. And that actually happened. So NSF, you know, retreated. I should emphasize that I don't believe Atkinson intended to weaken NSF's social science efforts. He probably thought genuinely that they were going well, but as director, he had his mind on other things. But that is what actually happened. As a final point, Atkinson's role and his legacy at NSF has received very little attention from historians. I, I hope my work inspires further work in this area. Thanks for uh, making clear Atkinson's 
uh, significance in NSF institutional history. And certainly his complex legacy for the social and psychological sciences. This leads us uh, to your seventh chapter, which was uh, fittingly titled Dark Days, Social Science in Crisis During the Early Reagan Years. You note the Reagan administration's new budget plan aimed at rectifying the high inflation and unemployment combined with low growth that presented the most serious set of economic problems since the 1930s, uh, with the key causative factor identified as, and I quote, the government itself. These conditions didn't bode well for NSF and especially its social science programs. Do you mind reading a bit for us here, uh, just so listeners get a feel for the extent of the partisan politics at work in the proposed NSF budget cuts in 1981? And I'm thinking this starts uh, with the second paragraph on uh, page 211. Yeah, sure. Let's see. Okay, quoting. The White House called for deep cuts in NSF social science. At the time, its directorate of the biological behavioral and social sciences had five divisions. Compared to the agency's 1981 budget, the administration's plans for 1982 included increases of uh, more than 6% for the physiological, cellular, and molecular biology division, 6% for the environmental biology division, and 1% for the informational sciences division. Right? So those are increases, but for divisions that don't involve the social sciences. And quoting again, in contrast, the social and economic science division, which at that point had programs for economics, geography, history and philosophy of science, law, measurement, methods and data resources, political science and sociology, would be shrunk by a stunning 70%. In addition, the behavioral and neurosciences division, which had programs for anthropology, cognitive and behavioral science, and neuroscience, would be shrunk by 26%. So I, I think we can see the uh, attacks on the social sciences pretty clearly from the from these figures, Keith. It's an amazing thing. And, and I think most people cognizant of things going on back then will remember uh, who was at the helm under Reagan uh, in terms of his budget director was David Stockman. And, yes. and again, it, you, you can't pin it all on him. But but on the other hand, that there's a there's a bit of history that uh, that that bears that out. Oh, definitely. Um, it's pretty clear that Stockman had a role in designing, uh, you know, and targeting the, those cuts toward the social sciences. Sure. Let me move us on then. While the early Reagan years uh, looked dire uh, for social science funding across the disciplines, uh, you also point out some real bright spots. I'm thinking of how you described the public relations efforts of the consortium of Social Science Associations, uh, COSA. Uh, can you share some of the backstory about the organization and what a pivotal role COSA played in defeating the 1981 Win Amendment? Yeah, well, those really were dark days. Um, there were worries that social science funding at the agency would be eliminated just altogether. There's a little more context now again, that needs to be um, mentioned here. So I've already mentioned the resurgence of the conservative movement. And within that, there's a deep streak of antipathy toward the social sciences, longstanding charges in American conservatism, but they had renewed vigor at the time because of the association of social science with the great society, the war on poverty and others, episodes like Macos that we just discussed. 
There was also a new configuration in American science policy, sometimes referred to as the new politics of science. Um, this basically emphasized support or increased support for research related to national security matters and economic revitalization, and at the same time, widespread cuts for government-sponsored social research related to government social programs. So in the, this is the context for these proposed budget cuts announced by the White House in early 1981. And a few months later, Representative Wynne, who was uh, from Kansas and a Republican, proposed an amendment to a budgetary bill that was under consideration that basically supported the White House's proposed cuts. So these cuts are being discussed at high levels and taken seriously, and they sent shockwaves throughout the social science community. And in that context, COSA uh, joins the fray and becomes enormously influential. Well, what did COSA do? Um, a number of things. First, it educated social scientists about science policy matters. So major campaigns to explain to social scientists how science policy works and how they could get involved and influence science policy on their behalf. So they the other thing is they also encourage social scientists to get involved, write letters to your local congressman, uh, ask for meetings, meet with them. And when you meet with them and you write your letters, here are the sort of things you should say. Not only did it target social scientists, but COSA targeted politicians to teach them about the social sciences, especially highlighting social science contributions to public policymaking. Another part of the strategy was to depoliticize this issue of the social sciences and social science funding, saying that this isn't a matter of conservatives or liberals or Republicans or Democrats. Social scientists um, and the work they do can contribute to effective policymaking, sort of regardless of where you are in the political spectrum. So when they specifically turned to confronting uh, or developing response to the Wynn Amendment, COSA really mounts a classic defense, classic if, uh, if you've been following a lot of these podcasts. The defense is that social science is part of a unified scientific enterprise. It's not ideology. It's not politics in disguise. It's really an apolitical, objective, value-free enterprise. And it has basic and applied components. And the basic component is always under in danger of being underfunded because um, agencies or organizations that have practical interests are likely to ignore basic funding. Um, so this is the role for a federal agency like NSF to support basic research in the social sciences, even though then the hope and the expectation is that that research will have valuable practical uses. It turns out that COSA's campaign uh, to get social scientists involved and to inform politicians about social science was incredibly effective. The Wynn Amendment was defeated by itself, was important at the time. Uh, but more broadly, this was a crucial episode in the emergence of COSA as a major new social science organization in the United States. Um, if you think if you think about the story up in, from the 40s to the 70s, uh, if listeners think about it, COSA was absent because COSA really didn't exist except as in the 1970s as a very small meeting place for a few uh, people involved with social science policy, but COSA really came into its own and came to represent tens of thousands, over 100,000 social scientists in the 1980s. And as I mentioned about Atkinson, there's really very little history, um, good historical accounts of COSA. So we really need a good historical study. It's waiting to be written. I hope we'll, so, someone will pick that up. Nice. Well, uh, your eighth chapter uh, continues uh, with the Reagan years. It's titled A Deep and persistent difficulties coping with the new politics of science throughout the Reagan era. So this was, as they say, not the end of the story for the social sciences. And some scholarship presents the story as if 
things were tough in the early Reagan years, but then improved over time. However, um, you point out uh, things were not so rosy or without difficulty. Can you unpack uh, some of that and, and what's important for listeners here? Well, yeah, it definitely wasn't a rosy period. It definitely wasn't a period without difficulty. And I, I say clearly here, this is not a story of the social sciences recovering well after a couple of brutal years, even though sometimes that's the way the story has been presented. Um, social science funding actually fell at NSF to about 3% by the late 1980s. Remember, it started out around 6 or six or 5% um, in 1980. And COSA did help pre uh, prevent the worst case scenario, which was, um, I guess, the elimination or even deeper funding cuts. But still, the social sciences took a beating during the two Reagan administrations. Sure. Now, that said, it's also interesting to look at differences uh, across the social sciences. And here I'm just going to say a few things about economics, because the economics program actually did reasonably okay during the 1980s. Compared to the sociology and political science programs, the economics program was about, in terms of funding, was about three times larger. And during the 1980s, economics actually, the economics program actually received about 40% of all of NSF social science funding. So why economics? Well, there were a few factors. Uh, one was the national concern, grave concern about the state of the economy. And while it seemed like economics might be able to contribute, to understanding and addressing the nation's economic woes. There's also this more specific rising influence of economists who champion the free market and deregulation. So well-known figures like Chicago's Milton Friedman or Harvard's Martin, Marty Feldstein. And there were also strong PR campaigns mounted, not just by COSA, but mounted by the economics profession. And last, and this is really important in the case of NSF, um, economics, uh, especially since World War II, had developed a strong mathematical bent. There was a lot of large-scale quantitative research. Research made predictive claims. So all of these features made modern economics seem more rigorous and more scientific than, than many of the other social sciences. But even though economics did reasonably well, we need to keep this in perspective. So after adjusting for inflation, the economics program at NSF actually lost funds. So the budget declined, albeit just a little bit, about 2% during the 1980s. But overall, I think it's fair to say that for the social sciences, uh, the 1980s was a dark decade in the federal government, in the federal science system, and at NSF specifically. And it's interesting about economics reaching kind of a pinnacle there, uh, which in some ways is not surprising given what we had just mentioned about uh, David Stockman and yep. his uh, relation to things. It, it was also interesting about political science and, and their own quantitative turn. And if you go back to what we were talking about or what uh, you were talking about with regard to Latin America, you had um, Albert Hirschman working in, in those days. And he was, of course, in, in some ways taken aback by the quantitative turn. But, but that's another issue and uh, tangential uh, here, let's move on. You, you open uh, chapter nine uh, with a quote by the anthropologist uh, Clifford Kurtz, who became known as a strong critic of the scientific stance, offset by a passage uh, by a 1983 essay 
by Henry Reekin, uh, the former NSF social science division leader, as we've talked about, who commented on the entrenched dominance of scientific commitments at the NSF. These competing visions of social science provide a nice uh, lead in to your chapter title, Alternative Visions, Fragmentation Behind the Scientific Front. Can you sketch out briefly for listeners the importance of these alternatives? Yeah, well, there had always been critics of the scientific approach, as I'm calling it, and these gained strength following the upheavals of the 1960s. And my goal in this chapter uh, called Alternative Visions is to highlight some of the most important challenges. So I identify four of them. Two of the challenges come from the world of the private foundations and think tanks. And there's a long history here, but briefly, the quest for value neutrality and apolitical work in the social sciences came under severe questions starting in the 1960s. So I give the examples of the Institute for Policy Studies on the one hand, which was the most important left-leaning think tank in the country during the latter part of the 20th century. And their leaders were looking to establish what one of their books uh, was titled, New Ways of Knowing, basically to marry the study of how things have been and how things are now with the project of reconstructing society, uh, reimagining a better society along progressive lines. There's also the conservative side of this story, which um, engages in a similar project, although with somewhat different goals in mind. Um, so the Heritage Foundation, the American Enterprise Institute, the John M. Olin Foundation and others are involved in this. And in this world of, of private foundations and think tanks, there's an effort to uh, fund and use social inquiry in support of values and causes on the right that they favored. So those are two challenges coming from, you know, the policy world. Um, and then there are also two challenges that are rooted more so in scholarly developments. One of them we mentioned briefly uh, in the first episode, uh, which was interpretive social science. And people who promote this approach to social science uh, point out that in the stu to study people in society, you need to examine and make inferences about thoughts, feelings, intentions, and goals. In this effort, means that the subject matter, the methods of inquiry, and the types of knowledge produced by this inquiry are going to differ in fundamental ways from work done in the natural sciences. And as you mentioned, Clifford Geertz, a cultural anthropologist, was a major a leader in, in developing and supporting interpretive social science. The second challenge coming mainly from the scholarly arena uh, it involves Thomas Kuhn's famous work on scientific revolutions. So Kuhn, as some people may know, made some remarks about the social sciences. He said, well, they weren't really mature sciences. They were in a pre-paradigmatic state. Well, how did social scientists respond to this? Um, some political scientists, psychologists, others, they sought to establish dominant paradigms in their field, thinking that, OK, this is the path to scientific uh, maturity. But if you step back a second, uh, you won't be surprised to know that the implications of this were debated. So if you establish the dominant paradigm, and let's say in sociology, would this make your field more like physics or chemistry, you know, a mature science? Or would it really be showing that each science has its own particular way of doing things, its own paradigm, and therefore each science should cultivate its own garden without trying to emulate the others? Nice. Anyway, the punchline of this chapter is that NSF's scientific strategy for the social sciences was under attack from many angles. But the consideration of those alternatives actually had a minimal role 
inside the natural science-oriented NSF and really inside other federal science agencies. Interesting. And you pack a lot in this book. Your 10th and last chapter uh, recounts the history of the NSF and the social sciences, as you've been sharing uh, with us here today and in episode one. I like the opening chapter quote you include by the former NSF historian George Mazwan from 1994, and I quote, the point is not to belabor the aphorism that those who fail to study the past are condemned to repeat it, but rather to recognize that both continuity and change in history need to be understood to deal effectively with the present. I want to focus on a few highlights here and end with your call to action. First, uh, can you tell us what the long-term trend in NSF social science funding looks like? And second, I'd also like to hear your observations on the controversy in the early 2000s about limited NSF funding for qualitative social research, including the critical commentary by the sociologist Howard Becker. Interesting stuff. Yeah, okay, let's start with funding trends. Uh, well, the basic question here would be what percentage of NSF's overall research budget went to the social sciences? And just summarizing what we've said before, from the early 50s to the late 60s, that percentage rose from 1% to about 6%. And then from the early 70s to the late 1980s, it, that, that number fell from about 6% to 3%. That's pretty significant, right? It's being cut in half. And then in the decades since, the three three decades since then, that percentage has remained small, just picking two recent years. 2017, um, social sciences received about 5% of NSF's overall research budget. And more recently, in 2020, that figure had dropped to 4%. I want to also mention that the agency's leadership has remained overwhelmingly uh, oriented toward the natural sciences. And the directors, except for, with that exception of Atkinson, have mainly come from physics, engineering, and biology. Sure. Okay, you mentioned that the case of qualitative research and you know this has never been well supported at nsf for obvious reasons it was considered too soft not rigorously scientific um so this has been a long-standing sore spot for social scientists who work exclusively or largely with qualitative methods and controversy erupted as you point out in the early 2000s um it started with some sociologists who were complaining about qualitative research not being well supported in nsf sociology program the response was that the sociology program itself sponsored a conference, invited a few dozen participants, and produced a report. And then there was an even broader effort um, by the NSF itself, which sponsored a workshop about qualitative social inquiry across the social sciences, again, inviting a couple dozen participants and leading to a report that was in 2009. So all of this was progress of a sort, right, recognizing that, well, NSF should consider funding qualitative social research, and then the question was how to do it. So some people could be happy, but others were unhappy when they read the documents and, and they sort of summed up what they thought the overall thrust of that was. So one of the people who took issue was the sociologist Howard Becker. As he saw it, the NSF project in qualitative research was trying to turn scholarship using qualitative methods into research uh, that looked more like scholarship that used quantitative methods. Basically, although he didn't use the term, it was trying to turn qualitative research into something uh, in the scientific vein. And here's what he said, I'm quoting. 
quit whining and learn to do real science by stating theoretically derived testable hypotheses with methods of data gathering and analysis specified before entering the field. Then you'll get NSF grants like the real scientists do, right? I mean, he says this in a sarcastic way. And this is part of the longstanding struggle over the proper boundaries of scientific social inquiry, defined so often in methodological terms, emphasizing scientific rigor. But as Howard Becker, and I think many other scholars have rightly pointed out, paying little attention and giving little support to the specific demands and aims of humanistically oriented social science inquiry. Yeah, that, that says it all right there. Thanks for that. Um, Mark, uh, you end your book with a call to action. Uh, this begins by recalling the importance of Harry Alpert and his 1958 article, The Knowledge We Need Most. As you wrote, and I quote, that the social sciences should be placed on an equal basis with the better established natural sciences, end of quote. Can you share with listeners some of your argument about how and why we should reconsider establishing a new federal agency for the social sciences, a national social science foundation? Yeah, and that, that is a telling quote from Albert from that 1958 article of his. Well, within the federal science establishment, social scientists have remained in the shadows of the natural sciences ever since Albert's days at the NSF. And this has a lot to do with the impact of World War II and the early Cold War years and the development of important new science advisory bodies and new military and civilian science agencies. And that impact has really been profound. Of course, there were also there have been subsequent developments that assured that the natural sciences and engineering would remain dominant. For the social science, NSF has always played as an important and special role in their quest for scientific legitimacy and in the project of trying to gain acceptance for their work within the broader scientific community. Um, at the same time, the social sciences have always been a very small part of NSF and NSF's uh, funding program. And the, within that context, the scientific strategy has remained most attractive. Honestly, uh, after examining the st this story over, as it's unfolded over nearly 80 years, um, no significant changes seem likely now or um, in the short-term horizon. The long-term, I don't know. Now, that said, um, as Senator Harris himself recognized back in the 1960s, NSF social science should be supported and defended. And this is especially true in our so-called post-truth era, where it seems like people can just imagine and assert facts about human nature in the social world, regardless of any of much evidence. Um, so there's a type of social science that aspires to objectivity and to be apolitical and all of that, that I think has a real role and that NSF does a reasonably good job in supporting. But there, we also need another federal science agency that's dedicated to supporting a full range of social science, not limited to what was called the hardcore end of the social research continuum. In addition to supporting a wider range of research, we need an agency that gives social scientists a voice of their own within the federal science system, where they're no longer constrained by their second class status in existing agencies like NSF. So these proposals, uh, Keith, and I hope listeners will agree, um, really are uh, pointed towards substantial changes. Of course, this would take a lot of energy and effort, but the first step would be to get social scientists and other stakeholders, uh, politicians, science leaders responsible for the health of US science, to get them to take up the suggestion seriously. Of course, there would be opposition from established interests who believe and benefit from keeping the social sciences in their place. 
but you know, it's 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 also important to realize that alternative models exist in other countries. Let me just mention that uh, you know I work at the University of Toronto here in Canada. Um, the major funding agency for the social sciences is called the Social Sciences Humanities Research Council. So the social sciences are placed alongside the humanities, and they're not placed alongside the natural sciences, which have their own federal research council called NSERC, or the Natural Sciences Research Council. Well, I don't know who knows, Keith. Uh, somebody listening to this po- podcast might just pick up this suggestion for a new social science agency and run with it. Wouldn't that be a, a nice outcome to this podcast? <laughs> nice. Uh, well, given the paltry funding of the social sciences, as you've documented over the years, it's not like you're saying the sky is falling. Thank, thanks for your scholarship, and, and hopefully uh, this will have some, as you say, transnational impacts, uh, because that, that's where it's at. So, Mark, thanks so much. Um, as a final question for you, do you have any reading recommendations for listeners as students of the history of the social sciences and the Cold War looking to complement and enhance their understanding of your work, especially given its relation to the unfolding dynamics we find ourselves a part of and its larger global geopolitical implications? Yeah, I'd be happy to. You know, there's a really rich literature, um, and I should say it's really hard to choose. There are many excellent studies, but let me give it a go here. So uh, one, suggest David Engerman's excellent book called Know Your Enemy, the Rise and Fall of America's Soviet Experts. Uh, a second suggestion, Joy Rohde, that's R-H-O-D-E, uh, has an excellent book, Armed with Expertise, The Militarization of American Social Research During the Cold War. Uh, another suggestion, Jamie Cohen Cole's book, The Open Mind, Cold War Politics and the Sciences of Human Nature. Also, Margaret Bethedo's book, The Nature and Nurture of Love, from imprinting to attachment in Cold War America. And finally, I hope it's okay to suggest a, a couple of co-edited volumes I've worked on and that we've referred to sort of indirectly. One I did with Hamilton Cravens, and that's called Cold War Social Science, Knowledge Production, sure. Liberal Democracy, and Human Nature. That came out about a decade ago. And then last year, there was sort of a, a companion volume that I did with a sociologist of science, Christian Day, called Cold War Social Science Transnational Entanglements. That's my limited set of recommendations. I could provide many more, though. Well, I appreciate your recommendations and your important and relevant scholarship, as as most recently uh, evidenced by this uh, 2020 MIT Press publication of Social Science for What? Battles over public funding for the other sciences at the National Science Foundation. Mark, thanks again for all your time and effort and helping us better understand the complex story of public funding for the social sciences at the National Science Foundation, which is really one of the premier science agencies in the United States, and and more broadly, to help us um, appreciate how the Cold War context, federal science policy, and U.S. political culture help shape American social sciences in ways that continue to have far-reaching significance to the present day. My thanks to you, Keith. It's really been a great pleasure. Thank you.